So with so much complexity with some of these insurance products, it's not surprising that sometimes even the insurance agents themselves don't really know what's going on under the hood. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. We just have to work on clarifying and bringing transparency to these topics. And it's something that we should be focused on as an industry. So I'm really happy today because I have one of my LinkedIn friends, Patrick Waters here of Peak Pro Financial. Patrick always does such a great job of articulating the complexities behind insurance products in a way that's really great and easy to understand. So we have him here and he's going to shed some light on IUL from a numbers perspective. So Patrick, thanks for being here. Of course, Sarah. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. So what is it that you'd like to show us? Well, Sarah, one of the things that I was looking at is the discrepancies that exist in IUL with regard specifically to the IRR. So anytime you have a series of cash flows, typically you have a series of cash flows coming in and then you have a period of time and then you got a cash flows coming out. There's going to be some rate that's going to equate those cash flows to being equal. So you could, the cash flows going in are going to, in theory, earn some rate of return. And then when you take them out, the scale is going to be equal. So unlike your traditional time value of money problem, namely a lump sum premium going in, sitting for a number of years, growing at a certain rate, and you have a future value, you have cash flows that can either be regular every year or every other year or three years in a row, followed by nothing, followed by a fifth year. These cash flows can be made even using the IRR calculation, which is going to tell you what the rate of return is that the money that was moved into, I'm going to use the term account, but it, it really could be anything. And then the corresponding withdrawals. What is that rate of return that was earned? Okay. In a nutshell, that is, that is how you figure out IRR. But does it account for withdrawals that the client makes voluntarily? Or is it just like policy distributions that happen from the insurance policy? This would, the, the, what we're going to be looking at is all the cash flows in and out of the client's pocket. Um, and this will account for voluntarily distributions. And at the end, I did have to include a death value, a pass to get the total IRR. So when, you, when I pull up the numbers, what you'll see is at the very bottom, there will, I will be assuming that there's a payment made in the final year, which is also added to the uh, death benefit, which is paid. So that will be a large value ad added in, say, year 40. Why is the IRR important? That's a great question. There, and I think there's really two reasons. The first is that it is a very, in my estimation, clean way to look at this product because it's cash in, cash out. There are no taxes. There's no way to, um, if you have a historical one, really obfuscate the numbers. There's no taxes. Um, it is a IRR problem at its heart. Cash in, cash out. The other reason that IRR is, is popular is when you run an illustration, there is the option to include the IRR page. 
A lot of times this will be done on a GUL, which is a very different product. But if you put in a series of cash flows and then you receive one lump sum, say in 20 years, it's going to tell you what the rate of return is on those series of cash flows. And it is also, it can be done on more accumulation policies, but there's a lot more detail that goes in specifically when do you take distributions. And then we bring up AG49, which is going to have a whole series of different, um, present different hurdles, which is really the reason that I did this. Okay. You want to talk about what AG49 is? Do we want to go down that road? Yes. Um, okay. So AG49 came about because several years ago. What, first of all, what is AG40? What does that stand for? Actuarial Gui Guidance 49. And who is it from? It is from the um, overseeing bodies of the insurance industry. Okay. So what they're, what they're saying is you can only illustrate at this rate. And it's important to realize where this came from because several years ago, IULs were being illustrated at absurdly high rates. I think of it as the wild, wild west. If you could justify one year's rate of return, now I'm using an extreme example, but somebody might say, hey, we got 9% in one year. Let's run an illustration at 8.5 because that's realistic that we're going to get every year in perpetuity for the next 30 years. Now, it's not quite that extreme, but there were illustrations that were being run at such high rates. People would see their illustration and they'd think, gosh, all I need to do is save X amount and I'll have Y amount because I'm going to get 8.2% for the next 40 years with no down years, no zeros, and it's going to be consistent. And we both know that's not true. So AG49 came about and they said, there's really two things that you have to account for. The first is the maximum illustrated rate that any carrier is going to be able to run their illustrate, illustration at is going to be based on a benchmark index. Now the benchmark index is going to be the carrier must have on its policy, the S&P 500 with a cap. And they're going to take whatever that index would have returned essentially over a 50-year period. And suddenly that is the rate of return that is the maximum for that carrier. Does that make sense? It's the rate of return that it would have returned over like 50 years, but with a cap on it? But with a cap. But with so a cap. If you, with a higher cap, you're going to have a higher maximum illustrated rate. So that is the rate that a given carrier, and, and I'm simplifying it here, but th that is the rate that a carrier can run their illustrations at. Who sets the cap? The carrier does, but they must make it so that the index is an option on the policy. So they're not going to offer caps of 15% because then everybody would allocate to that. So it has to be a competitively, uh, it has to be an index that is able to be allocated to on their policy. Okay. So that, that kind of is going to rein them in from having obscenely high caps on their S&P 500 because then everybody would just allocate to it and they would lose money. Okay. So the first part of AG 49 is the maximum illustrated rate is determined by the benchmark index. 
which is the S&P 500 with a cap, one year point to point. The second, and quite frankly, a little bit more confusing element of AG49 is they capped the arbitrage inside of the policies. That is correct. They capped the arbitrage inside of the policy. Um, and and there have been different iterations, but um, arbitrage inside of the policy was capped at 50 basis points. Now, to understand this, you have to realize what is the arbitrage inside of an IUL policy. And this is um, what makes these things attractive to a lot of people. For example, if you have an IUL that allows you to borrow, for example, at 4.75%, when you take out a loan of say $100,000, you're charged interest at 4.75, but it does not decrease the interest earning power of the account. So say that your, the, your index earns 8%. You just earned 3.25% on the $100,000 that you borrowed, which is 8% less the 4.75%, 3.25%. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. So arbitrage is a, now you can have periods of negative arbitrage and- When the index doesn't perform, you're exactly correct because you are going to have a rate that is being charged the interest. And if you get a rate that is lower than what you're charged, you will have a negative arbitrage situation. There's no floor. There's a cap or a ceiling, but there's no floor. Well, the floor would be zero. But so the most you could get charged in this, the example that I just brought up would be 4.75%. But there's policy charges that come out and expenses with that insurance policy. So even though you can't get a rate of return that's below zero, the overall policy could be at a net loss for that year. Without a doubt. Due to the ancillary charges. Without a doubt. And the other thing to consider is now the, the thing to realize is I'm a believer in the long term potential. I'm a believer in that these products over an extended period of time, emphasis added mine, will outperform the um, interest that is charged. So arbitrage over 10, 20, 30 years is going to be net positive to the policy. However, if you look at it in snippets, one year's, you're 100% correct. You could have a 0% return on the index uh, 4.75% plus all the, the policy charges. So anybody who says you've got a absolute floor of zero in one of these policies is incorrect. Okay. So what, so what exactly was the AG 49, uh, provision regarding this arbitrage? So it was capped at 50 basis points. What and was capped at 50 basis points. When you're showing an illustration and you're showing loans coming out, you can only show 50 basis points of arbitrage. Whereas, obviously, that's going to demonstrate better performance because if you're showing an illustration that has arbitrage of 300 basis points, you're going to have more money in the kitty and the amount of distributions is going to be significantly uh, higher 
or last longer, depending on how you look at it. Capping it at 50 basis points is going to dramatically reduce the amount that is shown. So I can't have an illustration that says the index returns eight, my loan is at 4.75, I've got 3.25 of arbitrage here. That's void, can't happen. It has to be, I've got 8% return and my loan is 7.5%. You're 100% correct. Yeah, okay. So that's right. And it does, you run into some issues because the policy that we use most often has a guaranteed loan rate of 4.75. So you pretty much have to say, okay, we're going to illustrate at 5.25, 50 basis points higher than the 4.75, because it's kind of nonsensical to use any other rate because we can always borrow at 4.75 in this policy. So once you start taking it, you can only show maximum illustrated rate that is 50 basis points higher than the loan rate. And come hell or high water, this policy is going to be have a, a loan rate at 4.75. So you run into an issue because the we're going to have to run once we start taking distributions at 5.25 yet the returns on this i would say should be closer to seven you should run your uh, 6.2 percent um yet we're running at a full hundred basis points less than that because we have to does that make sense mm-hmm. okay okay so showing some numbers here yeah so, so let- Patrick did a great series a few months ago that was really useful for insurance agents and anybody really to understand the complexities and the math behind this. So, so Patrick, what is this spreadsheet? So Sarah, you know, one of the things that uh, insurance agents, advisors do is they look at the illustration and they'll run it with an IRR internal rate of return, and they'll think that that's the be-all, end-all, that that is the determining factor, whether they're going to move ahead with a policy with their client or not. And one of the reasons that I did this was to show that some of the numbers, specifically those that are presented under AG49, are detached from not only are detached from reality. Because of AG49, um, I think that the IRR inside of an uh, IUL is almost worthless. So the first thing that I looked at in, in column B here is I took a 57-year-old <clears throat> female and I put $50,000 in for five years. Because we're going off percentages, the absolute values don't really mean much. We wait five years. I'm sorry, we wait four years, and then we start taking out level distributions from age 60 to age 100. I'm sorry, 65. We start taking out 31,000 from age 65 to 100. I'm doing my math here. I guess it looks like I got 30 years of distributions, so those would be from 
65 to 95. We get $31,000 per year. And in the end, this is the death benefit that I was telling you about. If you see up here, we have the distribution that we're normally getting in 31,000, and we have 199,838, which is the what I consider to be the residual amount, which is the death benefit paid to the client. The IRR that this generates is 7.54%. Now, the thing to note is this was run using pre-AG49 numbers. This was the wild, wild west. This was run with higher arbitrage than you can currently see. And it was run at a higher run rate than we can currently run our illustrations at. Then, and now notice, nothing about the policy has changed. Yet the attractiveness of it as determined by the IRR, it's gonna to appear to be a lot less attractive. And remember, the reason that we're doing this is to show that some of the numbers, specifically the illustration, are, ooh, I, I believe that the only thing an illustration proves is that ink sticks to paper. Because once that first premium payment goes in, the illustration is worthless. And without a thorough understanding of how these things work, you have no idea what's going on. And we see a lot of agents, a lot of advisors who look at an IUL illustration and treat it like an annuity. It is far from an annuity. Mm -hmm. And if you treat it like that, you're setting yourself up for failure. So some people get it in their head that I have to, or, or I'm going to take out $31,000 per year from this policy. Um, and what they don't realize is there's a ton of flexibility. We're merely showing you that assuming these conditions, which I hope you will agree are quite frankly ludicrous, you will be able to take out $31,000 per year. The policy will last for 30 years. And upon your passing, you'll get uh, $195,313 paid in uh, death benefit. And the problem with that is clients anchor in their mind this income level. They think that that is a static when it, nothing could be farther from the truth. One of the great things about this product is, for example, if in year 10, you had to take out significantly more than the amount that we have shown on the illustration, you have the ability to do so. Now that's gonna affect all the future numbers, obviously, um, but you can put that money back if need be. That is not an option within the annuity. So the, um, the first column that I have here is showing 7.54% is the IRR of the pre-AG49 numbers. Column D is showing under AG49, and this is where we're involving the maximum illustrated rate and the limit on the arbitrage. And it comes out to 4.73. Obviously, a 4.73 rate of return is significantly less attractive than the 7.5. And if you're using this 
This is the number that you would get on an illustration if you clicked the button that said include your IRR report. This is significantly less attractive than the 7.54. Now we had to get to a point where we were inputting our own numbers and calculating them because, because of AG49, we can't run the final two which are the reality, which is the sequence of returns from 2001 to 2018. Um, and I repeated those. So when I got to the end, I just started off at 2001 again. Um, and I had to use the charges from the carrier's illustration to figure out what the accumulation value would be to back into how much cash you would have. Um, and what I used in column H was the arbitrage that we saw in every actual year um, rather than capping it at 50 basis points. And what you see is that the IRR is 8.4. Now I wanna be perfectly clear that I am not using this as a justification that IUL is this Swiss army knife of financial products that can solve all your needs. It is not that, even though these are significantly higher. The mere purpose of this is to demonstrate that the IUL illustrations are detached from reality. And if you don't have a thorough understanding of actually what's going into it, you're going to get yourself into trouble, especially your clients. You're assuming, uh, why is why are the numbers in row 11 all the way to 36, et cetera? Like, why is that the same number? Um, oh, so when you run an illustration, you're going to figure out, essentially, it's going to do a uh, time value of money calculation, which is going to figure out what amount you could take out every year and have essentially zero left in the account when you die at age 100. And I rounded, uh, actually, now that I'm looking at it, I rounded columns B, H, and J to the nearest 100. I did not do that with D, I'm sorry. Um, but the illustration software will say, uh, how do you want to take your distributions? And you would just do level every year which again is oversimplifying what should be a very complex procedure, but this is trying to give you an idea of what might be possible if we, in the extremely unlikely event that we get a level set of returns every year for the first 10 years. You could run these illustrations doing 12,000 per year and then 22,000 to more accurately predict what you might, but this was merely a what is uh, I took max distributions for a period of 30 years to show, again, detachment from reality. And then the final column, column J, is, again, $50,000 per year for five years, waiting four years, and then turning on income. And we have the same death benefit that I had to calculate, which is going to be um, 327,540. 
and we're getting an IRR of 9%. These returns are the average returns of one of the options that can be allocated to in the IUL policy. I do not think that going forward, those returns will be as sustainable um, because the returns have been fantastic over the last 10 years. And the what is called the volatility controlled indexes are a new frontier. So I typically err on the side of conservatism when looking at these numbers. But again, um, this was a, an attempt to, like you said, look under the hood of IUL at, because no other product has to show an illustration breaking down what you might be taking out in year 30. Um, I guess annuity would. And, but I, I think that it's extremely complicated and confusing to a lot of agents. What do people not understand about this whole scenario right here, most commonly? What most people don't understand, I would say, is that never sell an IUL with market-like returns. Because when you know how an IUL is actually designed, the vast majority of the premium is going into buying uh, high-grade corporate bonds. And capital markets are efficient. And if you have 92% of your premium earning significantly less than what equity markets would earn, it's physically impossible for you to say over an extended period of time, you will get equity-like returns. So in response to your question, I would say what most people don't understand is the inner workings of IUL um, and how it can work in a high net worth client's portfolio, but shouldn't be sold to as a $1,000 a year 401k alternative. You mean the TikTokers that are saying IUL don't, is better than a 401k? Don't even get me started. I spend two, you know, I've said this a lot. I don't defend the entire insurance industry. What I do defend is proper planning, using these products for the right clients, for the right reasons, sold by people who know what's going on. In right. my experience, those people, I wouldn't say are few and far between, but they are uh, outnumbered by those who are selling these policies because we haven't even talked about the number of levers that can be manipulated by a nefarious or an unknowing agent that is going to cause this policy to have higher charges and consequently either blow up or not perform as advertised. What are some of those levers? Well, the, the, the most common one is people operate under the assumption that IUL is this Swiss army knife. You know what? You can get long-term care. You can get accumulation. You get a death benefit. Everything gets solved as long as you put a certain amount of premium into this policy. You're trying to do two things at once. 
And by that, I mean you're trying to maximize the death benefit. And long-term care is typically the death benefit being sped up to pay for your long-term care. You're also looking for accumulation. The problem with that is costs inside of an IUL are largely, not all of it, but largely come from the spread between the promised death benefit and the amount of cash you have. If you want to make this as lean as efficient as possible, as soon as you can drop the death benefit, you're going to do so. It's going to take out all those costs. It will not be an efficient vehicle for long-term care. If you're really looking for long-term care insurance, there are better products, more efficient. I like the analogy, you know, trying to do two things at once, you're looking for a Ferrari and a minivan. No car can get a family of four to the beach and also do 160 on the Autobahn. That's what some people say that this product can do. And what you do when you try to do that is you end up with a 1986 Ford Fiesta that gets decent gas mileage. And, you know, it's got a good blue book value, but it's not going to get a family of four to the beach and it's not going to go 160. It's meh. It does everything okay. And that's the vast majority of the policies that I see sold. So what is the whole, just to sum it up, what is the whole purpose of this spreadsheet of showing this? Like, what's the main takeaway from this? From the, I, about the num- that you want people to know about these numbers specifically? I really think that there's two things. The first is anybody who calls me and asks to have an IRR included, I think, let's walk through this illustration because what you need to realize is the IRR uh, of quite frankly, any financial product that you're going out 40 years is going to be a dart throw at best. In this case, it is a dart throw. The other thing that I think that this shows is it highlights how the AG 49 has obfuscated the truth. And it has taken the, uh, I believe, the deception of the product to a whole new level. Um, And it's probably for the better when you compare it to where we were, the wild, wild west of of 10 years ago. But it is far from perfect. Okay, Patrick. So thank you so much. Now, what... Would you recommend to somebody who is not an insurance agent, but is a financial advisor and their clients are being shown products like this and being shown these illustrations and these IRRs, what should a financial advisor do when their client comes to them and said, I met this uh, person at the golf club and they were saying that my, they could get me an IUL with a certain IRR. What should the advisor do next? Talk to somebody who, uh knows what they're looking at because I'm not going to issue a blanket statement that's going to say, well, they're clearly not a fit. Uh, If they're making $2 million a year and um, they have excess cash beyond what they're able to contribute to a qualified plan, maybe they're a fit. But the problem is there are so many policies out there when you break down the costs inside of them, the cost And when we're looking at IUL, cost is one of the three pillars that we're looking at to evaluate. The spectrum of cost from the most efficient to the most expensive 
ranges from about 80 basis points to well over 350 basis points per year. Now we can drive that cost on the low end significantly lower if we want to, but nothing is gained by paying a higher cost. The indexes, there's no correlation between cost and the index that you get, and the loan options are the same. So if they're not looking at cost inside the policy, walk away. And if you're an insurance advisor, break down the cost, talk to somebody who can show you the cost inside the policy, um, because my guess is it's going to be eye-popping, unless the agent truly knows what they're doing. Awesome. And what would you recommend for people to read if they want to learn more about this product or other products that you might that you think might be tricky for someone who's not a seasoned insurance agent or a product specialist like you to understand? Um, if you're looking for what I consider to be the um, New York Times bestselling popular book, um, David McKnight is kind of the uh, leader in his book. Um, there's two, The Power of Zero and Tax-Free Income for Life. And he's kind of the one who laid out the groundwork. Um, if you're looking for something more CFA level, Harvard Business School, there are several papers out there that talk about the correlation of asset classes, specifically how an IUL works in conjunction with um, other asset classes. And we're always looking for those uh, hedge funds or whatever that zig when everything else is zags. And there's a, lot, there's a lot of research out there that's showing for high net worth clients, because you've got a floor of, or I'm not going to say, it's, we'll call it zero, but you and I both know it's not technically zero. Um, and the volatility controlled indexes, which are more stable than the overall markets, um, they have a very positive risk return for the right clients. And I, I can't stop saying that enough. I know your listeners are thinking, God, is he ever going to stop saying it? But it can't be emphasized enough. Thank you so much. So if someone has questions on this, how could they reach you? They can reach me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm always there. They can also... Uh, feel free to give me a call. Um, my number will be uh, on my LinkedIn page and, and I can walk you through any of the illustrations that if, if you think your client is being sold something that's not in their best interest, um, I, I'll more than willingly take that apart. Yeah. So everybody, you know, one of the reasons I, that I had Patrick on here was that, and I think most of you that follow me on this podcast or on LinkedIn know that I say like the most outlandish things all the time. And one of the things I really admire about Patrick is his ability to stay rational and his ability to be very factual. Um, and I've definitely appreciated that. I think it's been very enriching for my audience. So, um, you know, what I would just say to everybody is you can always know more about these types of things. And I just would caution people to not kind of stick their heads in the sand and say, well, I'm a fee-only advisor, I'm a fiduciary, and my I don't invest my clients in this. Because even if you don't recommend these products, you never know what somebody could be coming to the table with. You don't know what anybody in that person's family might have or where where they might be approached by somebody and just might not know how to respond and you might be called in to help them. You just never know. 
So even if IUL is not your cup of tea, I think you still should take some time. And Patrick was so gracious to recommend resources and, and acquaint yourself with people like Patrick and perhaps even Patrick so that you have these resources because that's what a good financial advisor does. Just be ready in case, right? Doesn't cost you anything. One hundred percent agree. Yeah. Anybody, right? It doesn't cost you anything to connect with anybody over LinkedIn. Like people get so freaked out over it. It's like, say hello. You know what I mean? Yeah. All right. Well, Patrick, thank you so much. This was great. And um, also, everybody, just please rate, subscribe, and review this show. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time. Just a reminder that nothing in this podcast can be interpreted as a product insurance or investment recommendation of any sort. Nothing in this podcast can be interpreted as legal or compliance advice. For any recommendations specific to your or your client's personal situations, please consult a consultant, advisor, or attorney.